All right, everybody, welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, October 2014. I am joined again by Dr. Evan Schwartz, one of our clinical toxicologists and emergency physicians. Evan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me back. So you guys may remember Evan from a while back. We talked about intranasal naloxone. How come when you and I get together, all we ever talk about is heroin? Well, you know we talk about what we know best. All right, fair enough. This month, we decided to talk about the possibility of treating opiate overdose in the field and then just releasing the patient into the wild if they respond rather than bringing them to the hospital and watching them. Give us a little context in terms of why we chose this topic and decided to talk about it. Sure. You know what? We're always taught that if you treat them, that the naloxone is going to wear off. And if you don't watch them long enough, the naloxone is going to wear off quicker then the opioids are going to wear off and all of a sudden they're going to just stop breathing so that we need to keep them and watch them. And even if you look at this New England Journal of Medicine article from about 2010, they even recommend watching these people for even up to four to six hours after overdose. But what we notice is that most of these people don't really want to be in the emergency department and it ends up not being a great experience for everybody involved. They're yelling, they're fighting, the nursing staff is doing everything they can to keep them there. We're being distracted from other patients to keep them there. And the patient's actually upset. You could also say we're probably also violating their autonomy by keeping them there if they're awake and alert. So really the question is, do we need to do this? Are these people all of a sudden going to all start dying? Or is this something safe to let them go if they don't want to stay and be watched longer? Yeah, I think that sounds like a great question. So we looked at four articles that really looked at this topic, at the possibility of recurrent toxicity after getting naloxone. And we'll start with the first paper, and Evan, you want to tell us about that one? The first paper is the assessment for deaths in out-of-hospital heroin overdose patients treated with naloxone who refused transport, and it comes out of San Diego. They had actually done a previous paper where they looked at about 100 patients, and in that paper, they thought it was safe to release these people. And in this paper, they went and looked at 998 patients who had received naloxone in the field, who had responded well to it and had capacity to make a decision, and they let them leave AMA as opposed to being transported. And then what they did afterwards is they recorded all those people's names, and they went to the medical examiner, and they searched their database to see if anybody turned up in the medical examiner's database. So presumably if someone died, they're going to end up in the medical examiner's office. That was that was their thought. Now, you know, clearly if people didn't give their correct information or didn't give their names or somehow made it further out of the area that the medical examiner covered, they might have been missed, but their thought was that they should have found anybody that died and they looked within 12 hours of receiving the naloxone and being released and being found dead. So most patients received naloxone either intravenously or intramuscularly, and some patients did get multiple doses of naloxone, but when they went back and looked at everybody, they didn't find anybody that had died that was treated and released on scene. Now, they had the option to give the naloxone via endotracheal tube. If you've got the patient intubated, why give them the naloxone? Well, hopefully those people, A, didn't go home, but B, yeah, once you've put in the tube, there's really no point of giving them the naloxone. You're just going to have to give them something else to sedate them after you wake them up with plastic in their throat. So overall, they thought this practice was pretty safe as they didn't find anybody that died. 
So their conclusion was that it was safe to treat people in the field with naloxone and to release them if they didn't want to be transported. One thing about this study, there were 8,366 subjects that were given naloxone by EMS during the time frame, and only 998 of them were actually released by EMS. So we're talking about a fairly small percentage of the patients that we see, not an inconsequential percentage, but, but still fairly small. So this can't just be applied to everybody. They have to fit certain criteria, get back to normal. Sure, they actually had a, a table six criteria that people had to meet, including being oriented, they said being competent, and being able to understand the risks and benefits of either being transported or being released. The next study that we looked at was fairly similar. This one was called No Deaths Associated with Patient Refusal of Transport After Naloxone Reversed Opioid Overdose. As you can tell from the title, obviously there were no deaths in this study either. This one was by Wampler and others and was published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care back in 2011. This time, this was a retrospective review similar to the last article that was conducted of all San Antonio Fire Department EMS records for patients who got naloxone between November 2007 and June 2009 and then were not transported to the ED, whether they refused, whether they referred to the medical examiner already, whether they were sent away with law enforcement to the POPO. And again, this list of patients was cross-referenced with the Bihar County Medical Examiner's Office to identify any patient that was seen and released and then died or presented to the medical examiner's office within 48 hours of being treated and released. According to their protocol, patients with suspected opiate overdose were given 2 milligrams of IM naloxone, then had an IV established, and were given an additional 2 milligrams of IV naloxone. So a pretty significant amount of naloxone, it seems. Yeah, it kind of scares me that they may have put a bunch of people into withdrawal, but they don't really mention that. Yeah, there's probably a lot of vomiting after <laughs> this naloxone is given. Patients who then returned to normal mental status and had decision-making capacity, although these people have already established that they make poor decisions, but, yeah. but regardless, they're allowed to do that. Uh, with some responsible heroin users, you never know. <laughs> uh, and had acceptable vital signs. They were allowed to refuse care and were released. So they found a total of 1,700 patients who were encountered by EMS and given naloxone, and 592 of these were not transported to the hospital. Of those 592 patients, none were found to have presented to the medical examiner's office within 48 hours of EMS contact, so 0%. 95% confidence interval from 0% to 0.69%. There were two individuals they found who were treated and released by EMS who died within 30 days of contact. One of these died of a combined heroin and cocaine overdose, and the other died of a gunshot wound. So somewhat related to their heroin use, but not directly attributable to an overdose. Yeah, so when they actually looked at people that presented, I guess they actually found within kind of a year that it died, they did find a quite a few that had died from substance-related problems. So you could argue that had they gone to the emergency department and maybe got resources, that maybe that could have helped them. But once again, us forcing them to stay there and them yelling at us and fighting, I don't know that we're truly going to accomplish much and that they're going to really use our resources in that instance. Yeah, if they already didn't want to be transported, they probably weren't thinking about quitting their heroin use at all. Yes. So again, you know, similar potential limitations. If they were giving false information to the paramedics, then potentially they would be missed. But otherwise, it was a, another pretty well-done study. Mm -hmm. So for our next study, we're going to jump across the Atlantic Ocean to Copenhagen, Denmark. 
This was pre-hospital treatment of opioid overdose in Copenhagen. Is it safe to discharge on scene from resuscitation in 2011? This was another retrospective chart review. They included all patients with suspected opioid overdose who were evaluated by their medical emergency care unit, their MECU, between 1994 and 2003. These patients were given 0.8 milligrams of naloxone IV supplemented by 0.4 milligrams subcutaneously at the physician's discretion. So a much more reasonable dose, I think, in this study. I would agree. Less people probably vomiting and wanting to go to the emergency department afterwards. It was standard practice that such patients could be released on scene if, and I quote here, a substantial and lasting improvement of vital signs is obtained as assessed by the treating physician. So something to point out here is the paramedic system in Copenhagen is different from what we have in the U.S. It's much more of this Franco-German system that's often used in Europe where they actually have a physician on the ambulance riding around with the paramedics who help treat and, and disposition patients. So again, all overdose cases were then checked for survival data with their central personal registry. They got autopsy reports on anyone who died within 48 hours of MECU contact. They had mandatory toxicologic screenings as a part of these autopsy reports. And they classified patients who died within 48 hours as either rebound toxicity unlikely or rebound toxicity likely based on their police investigations. So patients who were seen alive more than six hours after contact were classified as being unlikely. But if they weren't seen alive within that six-hour time frame after MECU contact, they were considered to be rebound toxicity likely. Yeah, that was a real strength of this study, that they really did a good job following up these patients and really kind of investigating them further out to see what happened to them. They had 4,762 contacts. There were 1,517 who weren't identified. They didn't have identifying information, and they excluded those automatically. Bit of a limitation there. Of the remaining, there were 2,241 that they released on scene. Of those, 18 died within 48 hours. Four of those cases were automatically excluded. Two of them because they didn't get naloxone at all. One who died by suicide. One who was hospitalized after the MECU contact. So obviously wouldn't have been a rebound toxicity in that point. And so there were 14 patients with potential rebound overdose who were identified. One by police records was found to be natural death, not related to the opioids. There were 10 who re-overdosed after being released. And so there were three left that were likely rebound overdoses. So three out of 2,241 total patients. Opioid rebound toxicity was found to be the likely cause of death in those three cases, 0.13% with a 95% confidence interval from 0.04 to 0.39%. So unlike the other studies, they did find a small number of patients who likely had rebound toxicity and died, but it was very small. Yeah, and even if you think there's no way that they could have really reliably figured out who was a rebound and who wasn't, and want to say all 14 of those patients were real rebound toxicity, that still puts you at about 0.6% of the people that died. So some people, but still an incredibly small amount of people. Yeah, so you have to transport a lot of patients to potentially prevent those three deaths. It's not even clear if transporting those patients really would have prevented death at all. So again, they have a physician in their ambulances to help make these decisions. It's a little bit different than what we have in the U.S., but I suspect that our paramedics would be perfectly capable of deciding if this patient has returned to their baseline and is capable of making their own decisions. Even though our paramedics may not have physicians with them, they do all have access to physicians to talk to should they have any questions. So I'd agree. I think our paramedics here could make similar decisions. And lastly, there were a lot of patients that were excluded because they didn't have any identifying information. Those patients may have been at higher risk of recrudescence. I, I don't really know. All right, and that brings us to our last study. 
Alright, so this is actually from our neck of the woods in Kansas City. So this is opioid toxicity recurrence after an initial response to naloxone. Now just a couple caveats. This article was a little bit different. These were all patients that were given naloxone but were seen in the emergency department and were watched in the emergency department. This article is also a little older than the other ones. This, uh, this took place from 1987 to 1995. So it was a little bit different, but we included it just because they came to a little bit of a different conclusion. So this was a retrospective case control study, and what they did is they went back and looked through the emergency department database for all patients that had a discharge diagnosis of opiotoxicity and were treated with naloxone. So in addition to recording vital signs, they also record information such as what drug was taken and how it was taken and the amount of naloxone that was used. Now, a couple big differences, unlike the other studies, which we presume that patients used heroin, but to be fair, we have no idea exactly what opioid they used. A lot of these patients did use oral opioids such as methadone and oxycodone. Also, a significant amount of these patients also presented after suicide attempts. So that might make them different than the patient who is just recreationally using heroin and accidentally takes too much. Yeah, it definitely seems like a different population of patients, and I think time is the big difference there. This was the late 80s, early 90s. You know, crack was on the rise and was very popular. Heroin was sort of, you know, wasn't vogue anymore. Seems to have made a big comeback since then. So most of these, like you said, were, were oral overdoses. Now, the other thing to also consider is that the criteria for who had an opioid overdose and who responded to naloxone and who kind of recurdesced was very subjective. So they actually formed what was called a Delphi panel, and they put some emergency medicine physicians on it and some toxicologists, but they didn't actually give them any criteria to use. They just said, hey, go ahead and review the case, and you guys just come to an agreement if you think that this was an opioid overdose, if you think they responded, and if you think they recurdesced. So a lot of very subjective criteria. And so what they found is that there were a total of 84 cases, and of those 84, 42 either had a definite or probable response to naloxone. And then they also found that there was a recurrence of opiotoxicity in 13 of 42 cases, so that's 31% with a confidence interval of 17 to 45. So if you look at it, that sounds pretty bad. That would sound like 13 of 42 patients would have had a recrudescence and therefore could have died. But if you kind of delve into the numbers a little bit more, of those 13 that had some recurrence, the recurrence in 11 of those patients was all because they got a little bit sleepy. So that only left two patients that had some type of respiratory depression. But of those two patients, they didn't actually treat them at all. They just kind of watched them and got better. So really, even though it sounds scary that 13 of the 42 patients had some type of recurrence, of what we really care about, respiratory depression and possible death from that, none of those patients seemed to have any of that. Yeah, a little bit of sleepiness, that's just getting high on heroin or whatever drug it is you took. That's not really a bad thing, necessarily. No, once they're in the ED, I actually prefer them to be asleep. That's right. That's right. Sleepy may be a good thing. Yeah. And I guess the other thing to also keep in mind, when they looked at how long people were in the emergency department, they found the average ED time was six hours, plus or minus two hours. So even if you were bringing all these people in and watching them, I would say most emergency departments don't keep them there for six hours. Yeah, there were a lot of problems with this study. Like you said, most of the patients who had recurrence of toxicity didn't have any respiratory depression, and actually only about a quarter of the patients who got naloxone at all during the study had any documented respiratory depression. A lot of these were patients that we probably wouldn't have given naloxone to to begin with. We probably just would have watched them to wait until whatever they took wore off. Yeah, just watch and wait a turkey sandwich, and then they probably could have gone home. Absolutely.
All right, so what do you think, Evan? What are we going to do now? Can our paramedics just release these patients if they get back to normal after they get naloxone? So I think if the patient does want to come into the emergency department, particularly if they are using intravenous drugs and they want to get checked for HIV and other disease processes, or if they want to get addiction resources, I think bringing them in is, is still a good idea. But if the patient doesn't want to go, I think the data shows that it is pretty safe for them to go home as long as they understand that there is a very small chance that something bad could happen to them. Yeah, there were those three patients in the Copenhagen study that ended up dying, presumably due to recurrence of toxicity. Very small percent, but for the most part, most of these patients seem to do just fine. I certainly think if you really wanted to hedge your bets and say it'd be nice if you had somebody who could keep an eye on you, someone you could get, go home with, someone more responsible than you perhaps, that that would make it even a little bit safer. On the other hand, even if they don't, if they come back to the baseline and they don't want to leave, they have the right to refuse. Yeah, you know, it's easy letting someone make a decision you like, but it's harder to let them make a decision that you don't like. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. But I mean, that's kind of how our system's set up, and just like people can refuse going to the cath lab, or, you know, I had a patient with an incarcerated hernia that was strangulated that refused all treatment and wanted to go home and was not making a great decision you know, they seem to have the same rights to uh, make their own decisions. Yeah. And it's important to keep in mind, these are patients who get naloxone and really return to baseline. They're completely awake, alert, oriented, and not somnolent, not lethargic, not slurring their words. These are patients who truly get back to baseline. We would not recommend applying this to someone who gets naloxone and still looks very intoxicated. No, they need to be able to have a reasonable conversation with you. So if they're agitated and fighting or they can barely keep their eyes open, those are probably people that you should bring in to be watched further. Yeah. All right, Evan, another great topic. Thanks again for doing this. Thanks again for joining me. No, thanks for having me, and uh, I guess we'll have to try to find another heroin-related topic in the future. Can we do cocaine or meth or something else? Well, you know, speaking of meth, we did get the bad news that we have lost our distinction as the meth capital of the United States. So, and Where's the new capital? I want to say it's Indiana, but if I'm wrong, I apologize to all those people in Indiana. Well, as usual, thanks to you guys for listening in. Don't forget to check out our website, emjclub.com. Follow us on Twitter, where we're at emjclub. Go into iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review for us. Hope to see you guys back next time. Mm-hmm.